the theme of, of learning, that uh, an aspect of practice, a central, is learning how to live. And that's inseparable from learning about ourselves. Um, <clears throat> and the term self-knowing was used rather than self-knowledge, which is a much more common term. Uh, self-knowing is something that happens in the active present. It's very different than knowledge. Uh, knowledge is something that, for one thing, can be accumulated. It's acquired, accumulated. We know of knowledge. We know it in books. and Now we have tremendous amount of information and incredible research tools through the computer and so forth. Scientific knowledge, literary knowledge, all kinds of historical. And uh, in a certain way, there are profound implications uh, of this distinction. It's not just a play on words. The knowing, self-knowing, is something that there's a direct seeing, a direct silent experience of what's happening right here, right now, to you. And then that's the end of its value. It's not something you carry over. Um, the reason that it has such significance is that we've, in my, my own feeling, is that we've put a tremendous premium on knowledge. Now, perhaps many of us here know the limitations of it. Maybe more and more people are seeing that. This is not to discredit knowledge, but when I was growing up, there was tremendous faith that knowledge, research knowledge, scientific knowledge would save us. Because the more we knew, the happier we'd get, the better life would be, and so forth. Not just scientific, but certainly science on the cutting edge. It hasn't proven to be true. And so we have tremendous, we meaning the human race, we have tremendous uh, skill, technological skill, scientific skill, and have created magnificent machines. And, well, the technology is, is miraculous, a lot of it. And yet, the problems don't go away. In fact, they seem to be getting worse. Self-knowing is the beginnings of wisdom. That is, the wisdom I'm talking about is not quoting what Lao Tzu said or what Confucius said. It's not wise sayings wise words, uh, it can start there and that can contribute, but it has to do with real wisdom, which is in the heart, and it has to be lived for it to really be real. Uh, that's dwarfed, apparently, so that we can... I remember many years, some years ago, not that many, uh, it was either Newsweek or Time, the last frontier, and that was uh, diving down deeply into the ocean. And I saw it. I'm sure that's a challenge, a very interesting. We've already conquered space, and now it's time to conquer the ocean, something like that. But I realized there is another frontier, and uh, it's us. Whereas consciousness is infinite. And it's not, that's new. There have been, people have been doing it for thousands of years. Many of them within religious traditions. All kinds of people in different cultures. Certainly, uh, Asian contemplative culture has put a lot of time and energy into it. When we look around, the technical um, 
expertise or, or prowess or excellence that we've developed uh, has required tremendous energy, tremendous energy. And uh, just to put someone on the moon, uh, NASA, I heard about what it takes. An enormous number of people, lots of money, lots of time, tremendous cooperation, synchronization of so many different skills, uh, and then someone's miraculously on the moon. Um, But when it comes to energy put out to know ourselves, we're slack. Uh, There's not much. It hasn't been valued. Even our great universities have had more and more to do with preparing us for a good livelihood, for careers. Economic well-being has been emphasized. It's becoming more more of a concern with uh, humane aspects of education, too. It's always been there. But um, this form of self-knowing has not been given that much importance. The facts speak for themselves. And so what we have now is tremendous technology and wisdom, speaking of the whole race, the human race, that is, is dwarfed by what we know, knowledge, and the colossal ignorance that we as human beings have. This is not meant to be a political diatribe because it's true of all of us. It's, the, it's not a one party versus another or one country versus another. And it starts with us. That's why we're here. So I know that I'm speaking to people, I hope, that you, under, that, uh, you, you understand the, this in some way, in your own language perhaps. This is just one way of looking at it. So what I've been trying to suggest is that self-knowing is uh, the Buddha's contribution uh, to helping us learn how to live, the emphasis being on how to live in ways that are kind, that are wise, uh, that don't produce so much suffering for ourselves and everyone else. Um, We call it the Dharma. Um, And this learning how to live is inseparable from self-knowing. It's not a matter of, tell me how to live, give me the rules, and uh, a formula, and then sometimes people ask questions which amount to that. Uh, That wouldn't be helping you very much at all, Uh, because because each person has to learn how to live. I I see this as very much... uh, consistent with some of the great questions of Socrates. Perhaps his greatest question was a simple one. How is one to live? How to live? That's a big question for us humans. How how is one to live? And whether you ever entertain it, he would go around Athens, may I ask you a question? And then he would just poke poke around and get people to try to get people to look at how they were actually living or why they thought what they thought of, why they thought they knew what they knew, to try to get them to look carefully. He valued self-knowing, and the big question for him was, who am I? Um, Okay, and in the process of talking about that a bit, what was emphasized was that it's very close at hand. The Buddha says that if you want profound and deep inner peace, you don't have far to look. There's only one place to look. It's in you. That's, that's where it comes from. 
And we, for the most part, have many ways of avoiding that. And a retreat like this, as those of you who are in the groups know, we're trying to reorient ourselves, all of us, so that we look in the right place. And the mind's tendency is to escape. It has brilliant ways of escaping from anything it doesn't like. And self-deception, you don't have to agree with anything I'm saying, by the way. Self-deception is very powerful in us humans. It's the opposite of self-knowing. Self-deception is this incredible ability that we have to uh, conceal from ourselves, ourselves. Uh, to be ignorant of ourselves and not know it. You say, well, okay, if we're self-deception, let's just stop that. But that's what self-deception is. You don't know that you're doing that. Otherwise, it wouldn't be self-deception. It's not that we're intentionally doing it. Retreats like this, as some of you are finding out who are newer, the silence is an invitation for whatever is inside of you to start coming out. You may not like it. You may love it. But that's what we do here. This is, and you know, a lot of stuff that you don't like. As I was saying in the groups, this is a garbage dump. It's a garbage disposal, sewage disposal unit. <laughs> and Michael and I are sanitary engineers. <laughs> we are. Did you know that, Michael? <laughs> it's true. But don't feel sorry for us because <laughs> uh, there, there are ways where we just get it recycled and uh, it's used to grow night. The vegetables that you eat, <laughs> fruit and vegetables that we get for lunch, they come out of your garbage and mine. You know. um, but what was being emphasized, and Michael got it as well, is it's here, it's now, it's relaxed into the present moment. So it was all now, here, and so forth. And then uh, yesterday, uh, and with the emphasis on learning, uh, there's a, a quote uh, which I really love. I uh, read it many, many times over the years and then couldn't find it. A few years ago, suddenly, I don't know what happened to it. And I have a, a friend who's a bibliophile. I've put him to work on it. He can't find it. And I started to work out on Matthew to help me. Where is this quote? It's by a uh, Japanese painter co uh, artist called Hokusai a few hundred years ago. If, if any of you have seen the hundred views of Mount Fuji, uh, there are different views of the mountain all through different configurations of waves. And uh, I happen to like uh, the drawings, but he has a, a statement in it which just, I was very moved by a long time ago and I couldn't find it. And so I said, Matthew, will you help me? I think it might be in Henry, quote in Henry Miller, Tropic of Capricorn, he said, no. He said, it's in your book. You quoted it in your book. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So I've been looking in the wrong place <laughs> for happiness, uh, which is true. Uh, so uh, he promptly uh, Xeroxed the copy, and there it was. Uh, I, re I realize in sharing this, my stock as a Dharma teacher may go down. <laughs> but, and I heard my mind, uh, you know, the mind is always trying to kind of, it, it's got a, a wonderful PR person who's trying to, and I heard it saying, well, yes, it's true that you, you didn't even know you, you quoted it in your own book, which is a little embarrassing. 
uh, but you have to admit it shows you're not all that vain. You're not opening up a book and savoring your writings all the time. And I heard my mind apologizing and making a nice case for myself. That's self-knowing. It's self-knowing. Um, this all began for me in terms of uh, Dharma teachings. Uh, first of all, uh, everyone learns something from being alive. When I grew up, uh, the big saying was, yeah, I may not have gone to college, but I learned a lot more than you college kids from the school of hard knocks. And I'm sure everyone learned something about being alive. But uh, somehow, uh, the person who said that was, uh, I don't know what they learned. Because anyway, no, I don't have to go into my uncle. All right. Um, from this perspective, ignorance isn't really about how much you know in terms of knowledge, how well informed you are, but uh, how much you know, how well you know yourself. Um, and how can you do that unless you start paying attention? The very first teacher I had of these things was, was uh, an Indian named J- uh, Krishnamurti. Many of you have heard of him. And I spent a week with him many years ago. He was the very first person I heard talk about awareness in this way to me. And I didn't even know who he was. Uh, he was spent a week at a, a, a campus in Boston. And um, I got to spend a lot of time with him and was very impressed. And then the week ended. And uh, I wanted some instructions. Uh, so he... He said, uh, I wanted meditation instructions, and I had read, started, started reading that week some books on counting the breath and all kinds of things. And I wanted something nice and clean and manageable, a technique that I could do. And he just said, look, put your house in order. Get your house in order. And I said, oh, how did he know that I, my underwear is all over the place? You know? <laughs> uh, And so when I questioned him, he said, it includes you know, neatness and a little, you know, enough cleanliness and all that. But that's not what I'm talking about. And then he clarified. He said, pay attention as to how you actually live. And then he emphasized it. Actually, how do you actually live? And he burned it into my consciousness forever. Not how you think you live. Not how you th- you're supposed to live. Not uh, any image you have of yourself living. But from moment to moment, pay attention as to how you actually live. Okay. Well, so I started doing that. And uh, that is natural for me now. It's not that it's easy, but it just seemed sensible. It just seemed, why, of course. Uh, If meditation is just going on retreats in nice rural places and uh, sitting on your cushion... Uh, and you neglect all the rest of it, I don't see how it could work out too well. Unless you're, certain people are chosen or have that... It's a certain kind of uh, person and a gift, perhaps, of, uh, let's say, people who live in, in solitude, in the caves and forests, or monks who have, just want to do that and are not interested in the challenges of daily life. But that's not our story. We are very much in daily life, and it just seemed sensible. So and when I got involved in Buddhism, 
this followed me into it, and I just never dropped it. And it all seemed to be, well, isn't that what the Buddha is saying? Be mindful while sitting, standing, walking, lying down. But what I found is that there's tremendous emphasis on the sitting, and that's good. Over my shoulder, our boss, he's sitting. Uh, you don't see anyone, the Buddha's, you don't see a Buddha vacuuming, <laughs> or doing any, making love, or anything like that. Uh, and what I saw was, as, and I fell in love with sitting and retreats, did lots of them, long ones, short ones, any kind. And I think it's very, very beneficial. But I also saw the tendency, starting with myself, uh, for the mind to divorce itself from the outside, to create, as I mentioned the other day, in this perspective of seeing there's just life. A retreat is real life. It's not when we go back to the real world. There's no way to leave the real world. This is a real world that we're in right now. And in some ways, at times, more challenging than what we face out there. Because we have nothing to do but face ourselves. Um, So what I saw was that a certain kind of non-hospitalizable schizophrenia could develop, where you just look forward to the next three-month retreat. I'm speaking personally and also of friends of mine. Uh, And and nine months go by where you're trying to earn money to get enough money to go back to the next three-month retreat, and during the nine months that pass, you wear the, 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 the three-month retreat you just finished as a kind of combat ribbon, like <laughs> whether it's Vietnam or now it would be Iraq. You, you know, three-month retreat of uh, whatever year. Uh, and you talk about it a lot, and then finally the day comes and you eagerly run back for three months. What happened to those other nine months? Not necessarily lived too well. Same jerk, just more calm. <laughs> you know, uh, and so little by little, it became clear that the words, because we kept hearing out of it, be, be mindful in all poverty, you know, the practice isn't just about uh, sitting. Everyone says that. Um, and I was in Zen for eight years in in Asia, in Korea, and Japan, and here. And there, they talk about daily life more, action much more. Uh, what is enlightenment? Um, eat your rice and drink your tea. That's kind of symbolic. Or uh, a new uh, yogi, a new monk comes to the monastery and asks the master, what, uh, what should my instructions be? I just arrived here. And he said, did you have your breakfast? And he said, yes, I did. And he said, go wash your bowls. And so that sounded great. I was very at home with that because I, I thought that's sensible. Uh, the practice includes everything. But what I found out was it's mainly about physical labor, about you know, the, you know, chopping wood and carrying water. And, uh, and I said, well, what about this relationship stuff, which just seems to be why many of us wind up at retreats in the first place, because it's a disaster. <laughs> and so we crawl into a retreat center like a soldier in combat into a uh, combat tent, you know, the tents that are medical tents that are right there, like MASH. (laughs) And then, of course, the job of people like myself and Michael is to kind of fix you up as much as we can and send you back into combat. (laughs) And sometimes you don't want to go. Is it understandable? So these are all what led to uh, a view of why 
if we start on a retreat seeing life as a whole, uh, prior to any of these forms, magnificent ones, brilliant ones uh, that have been tried and tested and been found to be extraordinarily helpful for humans for a few thousand years, more many thousands of years, before Buddhism. Um, that's great. But uh, somehow it seems necessary to, if we could start viewing things, as, as particularly as lay people. If you go to Asia, at least where I practiced in, in Thailand and you know, a number of Asian countries, four or five. There are lay people who are quite serious, but by and large, the heavy lifting is done by the monks and then secondarily the nuns. That is, the real meditation is done. There will always be one or two, a few, but it's very much a monastic culture in Theravadan Buddhism. And whether this continues or not, has been something that's been going on. This is going to be the 30th anniversary of IMS, so it's been going on for a while. It looks like it's here to stay, at least for a while. And there's tremendous energy, and it seems to be growing. Uh, so that lay people really want to do this. So we need a practice that enables us to live our lives, families, work, school, whatever, whatever your life is, retired, it doesn't matter. Uh, and that uh, where it's not viewed as a conflict. Some, a number of the questions seem to imply that either I become a serious meditator, uh, and if I do, I have to drop uh, being a graduate student in XYZ, or, uh, or I just become a graduate student and that's the end of my practice. Uh, that's made up by the mind, in my opinion. I think that, so we need a practice that, and the attitude is central. We have to really value the ordinariness of daily life, because if you don't value it, the same hierarchy will persist. And, you know, you do okay, because you do, if you keep practicing even in a limited way, your life can improve. You start eliminating some obvious problems that you have and it becomes easier, becomes somewhat kinder. But I think it can go a lot further than that. Um, I want to, some of the, a lot of what I'm about, to, some of what I'm about, what I'm about to say right now comes out of some of the questions and some of the comments which were not necessarily explicit in the groups and also which come up again and again over the years. What I've found in trying to teach this as best I can, if you emphasize daily life, then people neglect sitting. Oh, great, I don't have to sit anymore. He's saying, you know, like, just, uh, you know, go to a cafe and that's it. That's great. Just really drink that espresso. Okay. Uh, so then when that happens, you see people are starting to not sit. They're not going on retreats. This is imper- my observations. Then you put emphasis back on the sitting. Oh, no, and then you go on. You get to tell story, anything to get people to start sitting and going to retreats again. And then they neglect daily life. And then so it goes, like a tennis match. Okay, so uh, can we avoid that and not see them as opposites? Uh, understanding that sitting will vary from person to person. Some people have a real bent, love to sit. They're born, born contemplatives, lay people, really, really love to do it. And you'll always sit more than maybe another person who's more of an active type. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily wiser or freer. You can be. It depends on what we do with what we do. It's how we use our life. But within that, can we not undermine uh, the opportunities to come to places like this and to sit at home as well, 
not undermine it by emphasizing the fact that life itself is, is practice. They, it can be done in such a way that they're not separate. And the other way around, of course. So it's just, please be on the alert in yourself. See if that happens. I don't want to contribute to that, is what I'm saying. Let's see how we're doing. Okay. Um, self-knowing is not uh, simply doesn't simply happen on the cushion. In fact, some of the most important knowing happens in action. Uh, what I'd like to suggest is that uh, what the Buddha, the Buddha's teaching, which I obviously have great respect for, it's helped me tremendously. Um, is a revo- it's an inner revolution. It's bloodless, it's quiet. Um, and it has to do with the, a radical change in the way we, re- we relate to things. For example, the different religions have ideas, some of which seem very different from each other. But what, for me, what makes it different and makes this approach, the Buddha's approach, uh, possible for me is the relationship to ideas. In some religions, ideas are completely sacred and finished. It says in the book, and that's it. We'll go into much more of that uh, next time, perhaps. I don't know. We'll see how the time goes out. Uh, what's uh, appealing to me, one of the many things that's appealing to me about this, is that there are ideas in the Buddhist teaching as well. But the relationship to the ideas is not one of absolutism. It's one of where you take the ideas and you test them. Um, what I'd like to suggest is that self-knowing uh, can be viewed in terms of beginning to see how we relate to the different aspects. In other words, relationship is life, to be related. And it's not just to people. How we relate to ideas, to things, to nature, to our bodies, to food, to thought, to time, whatever it is. We're, we already, everyone's relating to, the, to, to life in its many forms. Whether they heard of meditation or not, uh, but we're being introduced, re-educated, I would say, into a different way of relating to what's happening. Rather than either grasping at what, and, or pushing away, uh, we're learning how to just meet what happens intimately, fully, uh, without grasping or pushing away. Um, and self-knowing, to begin with, is very ordinary and from, should be familiar. That is... Um, just start with your body, for example. Uh, how you eat, how you sleep. Do you understand how, what, what you need? Do you understand what foods are best for you? Uh, some of the yogas are m- much more developed here. Uh, I, I'd like to, my own sense is that the Buddha gave some suggestions about uh, diet and exercise and all that, but his main teaching is always the same, moderation. That can take you quite a ways, it's not trivial. But I feel, at least my experience of, of Buddhist teachers, is that there's almost a fear that it's obvious we're all very attached to the body to begin with, so let's not emphasize that. Let's not get into yoga, for example, because it's dangerous. And is that true? Of course it is. Just look around. 
that what we see is mainly leotard yoga, where what's important is this very profound uh, physical training, which was part of a whole tradition that includes meditation of a very deep sort, like ours in some ways, uh, has become reduced to having nice thighs and a nice butt. That's quite a, that's quite a journey away from what... Uh, I mean, I'm not against nice thighs and a nice butt. But I think there's a little bit more to it than that. Whew. And what if you don't have nice thighs and a nice butt? Finished. It's, it's over. Get out. Uh, but let's say, in general, what, for example, the, the certain foods, uh, health is not something extraneous. If you can, it's not, if you can, and some of this has come from American culture and it is influencing Buddha Dharma, and I'm happy it is. Much more of a concern with eating in a, in a way that enables the body to be healthier, to have more energy, to not get sick so much, for the nervous system to be strong. You need a strong nervous system as the meditation gets more refined, a certain kind of energy is, is uh, awakened. And it's helpful if your nervous system uh, keeps up with it. By and large, you, you don't go beyond the, you maybe a little bit. Uh, so at some diets contribute to sleepiness or restlessness. There are other diets that are much more meditative, foods that influence the mind. There's a whole ancient science of it. But it's not part of Buddha Dharma. I'm not, it's not a criticism, but I think there's been a fear that, uh, at least in the Buddhist teaching, and I'm not saying it's ill-founded, that it's too easy to get attached to the body. And so there are many meditations which help, the best I know in, of any of the traditions that I know, of how to, not, how to um, diminish attachment to the body by viewing it in certain ways so that the romance and the idealization that we have of the body, is, that is uh, punctured. So self-knowing has to do with paying attention as to how you live. Here you have such a good chance to do it. It's limited in a way because we don't have complete freedom. But begin to learn about your sleeping habits, how much, uh, what kinds of food are helpful for you that actually contribute to your practice rather than hinder it. Start seeing, learning about how your relationship to taste, good taste, overwhelms other considerations because we overestimate its importance perhaps and underestimate the consequences of it. And then again and again we make vows and don't listen to it. So that, uh, uh, personally, it's not that I'm trying to trumpet yoga. I, I, I do yoga, and uh, Matthew and I teach yoga uh, at, here sometimes at other places uh, in the service of the meditation. It, it's not to, uh, it's in fact an expression of it if it's done mindfully. So that's one kind of relationship, relationship to your body. I'd like to begin relationship to objects, relationship to money. Uh, you, can, you see what I'm getting at. But of course, the big one is relationship to people. And uh, in the group, I suggested I was going to get that started tonight, and so I'd like to. One way to relationship, now we're talking about relationship to people, not just intimate, but any human being who's in your presence. Uh, can that be a very powerful Dharma practice? Of course it can. Uh, it's perhaps the hardest thing for us to do. That's where we fall down. Uh, we, we humans, we don't know how to live together. It's very hard for us to live together. 
Just look around. It's been going on for thousands of years. It's not just wars. It's hard. We just, we, that art is not one we've developed. Uh, by the way, I'm going to, okay, I'm going to, the quote by Hokusai, I wanna, I'll finish up with that. But I <laughs> forgot all about it. <laughs> After Matthew Xerox had reprinted and everything. Have it here. Right? <laughs> um, one way to, to, to how to turn relationship into a dharma practice. Uh, one way is to begin to see relationship as a mirror. That is, in terms of self-knowing, every time you're in the presence of another person, long-term partner, husband, wife, child, uh, students, worker, someone who who's in your living arrangement who you don't like at all, someone who you love, um, when we're with other people, we, if you pay attention, start develop, not only pay attention to the other, but also notice some degree of, don't lose touch with your inner reactions. It's essentially studying reactions. Uh, if you start, at first you'll forget to do it. But with practice it can become quite a very beautiful way to live. That is, let's say in interviews, that in, like the discussions that we had today, uh, I've been doing this for a number of years now. I, I'm not saying I've perfected it, but um, that's the way I mostly live. So that while I'm, let's say, attending to you, someone speaking, sometimes I do a good job, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm affected by what was said or by the person. If I'm in touch with that, in other words, it's show, teaching me something about myself. I don't like to hear that. Well, I don't like how that person's dressed. You can't help it. It's conditioned. It's mechanical. And so much of what we call interaction is mechanical. And we, sometimes we think it's spontaneous. It's not really fresh and creative and spontaneous. It's conditioned. It comes out of our history. It may be strong, and it, sometimes it's uh, fun or it's unusual. But uh, I wouldn't call it free. Okay. So now, uh, here's where it becomes not simply being well-adjusted, but if you pay attention to your reactions in relationship, and you'll see in a moment why I'm teaching it right here on a retreat, which, what relationship? We're walking around in silence. Um, When when you feel a reaction, especially the reaction, um, let's say uh, you don't like it, or you do like it, many, if not most, many, many reactions, you'll see it's about me. It's me who's having the reaction. Now, to jump to the highest teaching, at least in Theravada, the way it's put by one of my teachers, Ajahn Buddhadasa, which is that what the Buddha is finally saying, it's in the Buddha, there's a, a, a sutra where the Buddha talks, this, uh, more than one sutra. The essence of the teaching is not to attach to anything as being me or mine. And yet what we're doing is all day long, it's me and mine. If someone, if your wife tells you, please take out the garbage, you, uh, you haven't taken it out in a couple of days, I did so. You know, you can feel it. You can feel it right there. It's me. Or, so you start becoming sensitive to that. As the awareness, and of course that presumes that the awareness not only knows to stay in touch with your insides while you're attending to what we call outside, eventually that distinction is a little bit artificial. Um, uh, you begin to see that as your ability to do that improves and as the quality of your attention develops, 
when you are attentive to the reaction, you take the power out of it. It literally loses its power, often will start to disappear. And it's replaced by clear space and often a burst of fresh energy. Now, in that clear space is the possibility of a response, not a reaction. Now, sometimes you say the very same thing. Well, you do the very same thing. I mean, I, I've seen this in myself. And yet, the effect is totally different. Because the first one is mechanical and often defends, defensive or critical. And the other person receives that energy that way. But when you take care of the reaction and it loses its power, and then there's the option. There's, maybe it's just for a few seconds. For a response, it's coming from a very, a, another dimension of living is opened up. And that just gets more and more refined as you do it. If you don't do it, it won't get developed. Uh, so some of the problems we have, let's say we have tendencies, images of ourselves or a history. Some of us have concluded about uh, an image of yourself is a conclusion, and it's often unexamined. But some of you, people here are pretty good. You all know it. It came up in groups a lot. I have a history of I have been um, very effective in certain ways, but I'm a, a received as abrasive with others. Uh, Hey, now if you harden on to that, if you make I'm an abrasive person, then that's it. It's over. You know, you've really fastened on to that image of yourself and it, you've give, you keep giving it life. If you see it as just an image and it falls away, there's the opportunity to break new ground. Uh, just the opportunity. Now, how to live? I, don't, I wouldn't dream of telling you how to live because I'm trying to figure out how I should live. But when the mind is in that space, and this is, we'll go into this more uh, next time, the silence is, is remarkable in that you could call it a, a, another kind of intelligence is awakened. It's not one plus one equals two intelligence. And to, to link up with what I was saying earlier, uh, we have favored a certain kind of intelligence, rational, conceptual, logical, and in a certain way we have not considered intelligence what is intelligent, intelligently. Because what we've excluded is, you could say wisdom is intelligent living. And it's not, it doesn't come from figuring things out. That's, there can be wise thoughts, and we've read wise people, and then we try to live that way. That's helpful. But it doesn't have the, the, the real depth and the transformative power of when you start tasting the silence. Don't ask me how that happens. To me, it's mysterious. But you, there's something in the silence that, you, that uh, when you start dwelling it a little bit more, a little bit more, uh, something happens. And it's not intentional. You're not trying to be kinder. You're not trying to be wiser. And yet the mind is clearer. And somehow uh, the seeing, the real seeing produces, real insight comes out of that mind. It's not something thought out. It's not calculated. That's the beauty of insight meditation, when it starts to really cook. Just the clear seeing is taken care of so much. Okay, so relationship can be a tremendous help, but that means you have to look at sometimes what you don't want to look at. Like when Krishnamurti said, pay attention as to how you actually live. When you do that, one of the first and most painful things that happens is some of your cherished self-images uh, get broken into pieces. They're just simply not true. They're just images. 
your ideals of what you'd like to be, who you think you are, who your mommy told you to be like, whatever. But you can see in how you actually behave in a given moment. And it can be painful, but that's uh, how we grow. Uh, if there's a person uh, who you have to live with, uh, not married to or anything, but in a small community who's offensive in so many ways, and it's really a bother, uh, I wouldn't, of course, Dharma would suggest that you try to, whatever you do, not do it in a, a violent, aggressive, harsh way. But then, but now how, do you, how do you negotiate? How do you work with a person whose living habits are so awful that it's uh, unbearable to live with them? I don't know. But if you watch your reactions, which are strong, the reactions start losing the, their power. Remember, the reactions are conditioned. They come out of our unique history, personal history. Okay. As that loses power and is replaced by space, silence, emptiness, there's the possibility of looking at the, tr- the person who's troublesome in a very fresh way. There's the possibility of a response coming out of it that might be kinder and wiser and even more effective. Uh, just the beginnings of it. But, you see, if we don't make relationship a Dharma practice and, uh, and give it tremendous dignity and value, and we, we keep thinking that the practice is just sitting and retreats. Or you hear talks like this and you say, yeah, that's nice, but we all know it's really about sitting. Have you had any thoughts like that? Good, an honest woman. I, you know, it took me a while because uh, part of why we're sitting is because we, uh, words, our suffering is in relationship. But then there's a, a small print. When you come here to get away from the suffering in your relationship, we then ask you to look at that suffering, don't we? You don't like that some. Sorry. That's how you, you can't get free of it unless you open up to it. Um, learning. The last point I like to make, and then I'll end with uh, good old Hokusai. Let me give you an example. Like tonight, the late night sitting, there are a number of. Michael, I'm going to go a few minutes over, okay? Not much. <laughs> <laughs> what is he going to say? No? <laughs> He'll. You'll come across as a terrible person, <laughs> a, a bad friend, you know, <laughs> okay. Um, the late night sitting, let's say we're going to finish a sitting in a while, It'll be the last one, have a hot drink, decide whether you want to go to sleep, come back and so forth. There are many ways to teach. Uh, I, I feel there's a difference between a kind of training, like repeating the breath, in, out, in. It's a little like drill. And where will is required, it's kind of, Disciplined of a certain kind, external support for it. That has value. I'm all for some of that. But learning is very different. And more and more, to me, that's the important discipline, but that you need both often, and different people benefit at different times in their life from emphasis on one or the other. Learning is the clear seeing of something. And let me make this example quite concrete. Let's say you face the choice. Should I, I have my hot drink, should I go to sleep or come back into the hall? Okay. One way is U.S. Marine Corps style. You just go back into the hall. Don't, I don't want any of this pay attention, be sensitive, and all that. You know, <laughs> just go back into the hall, be quiet, and sit. You know, the, and the longer you sit, late into the night, the better a yogi you are. Okay. Uh, pushing it, encouraging it, is safer in my experience. 
What I'm about to say, which is how we teach it, uh, is to really make it an exercise in self-knowing and developing wisdom and learning how to live. Pause. Be with yourself. Sometimes wisdom is going to sleep. Sometimes wisdom is coming into the hall. Getting to, listen, getting to hear the different voices in the mind and learning which one can be trusted, which one is accurate. It takes practice. And you realize go to sleep is not necessarily true or wise. You have plenty of energy. And so then you guide yourself to the hall and it turns out to be not bad. Good, good way to, to end the evening. And at other times, marching yourself to the hall in some grim, uh, you, know, you know, aggressive, uh, punitive way. Or there's, uh, uh, so you sit here. You clock time. Is that what it's about? You know, add it up. How many, how many hours you were on the cushion? And that means you're a great yogi. Wisdom, does, you can't measure. Wisdom doesn't come about that way. It comes in through. So learning is its own discipline. Now, it's more risky from a teaching point of view, it's abused much more easily. If we just said, come back after your, come back and sit for at least a half an hour after your hot drink in that voice. Now, I wouldn't go over here, but in some places it goes over. Um, more people would, would do it. But if we say, uh, be sensitive to, what, to your experience and learn whether it's wise to come back into the hall or to go up and sleep, which one is wisdom, just in this evening. It's not going to be the same perhaps tomorrow. Uh, that's, that's, uh, that's an open invitation to just go to sleep. And I know it, but I value the learning part because in the long run, I think it has more value. What you start to develop is a sensitivity to yourself. The other is, seems uh, you're, you're always dependent on externals to get anything done. You've got to have people bossing you around, marching you around, drill, rules, uh, hurting us from here to there. Uh, and if you're left on your own, blah, 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 you know. <laughs> okay, let's see what Hokusai has to do. Okay, this comes from the Hundred Views of Fuji. It's from the preface. It's, it's actually a book. From the age of six, I had a mania for drawing the form of things. By the time I was 50, I had published an infinity of designs. But all I have produced before the age of 70 is not worth taking into account. At 73, I've learned a little bit about the real structure of nature, of animals, plants, trees, birds, fishes, and insects. In consequence, when I'm 80, I shall have made still more progress. At 90, I shall penetrate the mystery of things. At 100, I shall certainly have reached a marvelous stage. And when I'm 110, everything I do, be it but a dot or a line, will be alive. I beg those who live as long as I to see if I do not keep my word. Written at the age of 75 by me, once hokusai, today, Guako Rojin, the old man mad about drawing. Okay, obviously what I'm talking about is can we replace this art with the art of living? To really fall in love with trying to go sane uh, for you, and only you can do it with your own life. And one nice thing here, because we're well distributed, 
little top-heavy in the Gray Panthers direction. <laughs> uh, doesn't matter how old you are. You start now, wherever you are. The possi- uh, possibility of beginning to learn how to age, eventually how to die, which we all will have to face. So uh, it's not uh, reserved just for young whippersnappers. It's for all of us. Uh, we're alive. We have this life. And, you know, there's this saying, you can't teach an old horse new tricks. Uh, I don't think that's so. Uh, I think you can teach an old horse new tricks, uh, but uh, it's up to each horse. Hey, could, could we have a few moments of silence, please? May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.